In this episode of Read by Example podcast, where teachers are leaders and leaders know literacy, I spoke with Dr. Megan Chanin Morin, Professor of Educational Leadership at the William & Mary School of Education. A former principal, Megan is also the author of Trust Matters, Leadership for Successful Schools. During our conversation, we discuss what sparked her interest in researching this topic, specific strategies to foster relationships and reliability, and why trust matters more than ever. Welcome, Megan. Uh, glad to have you on here. And um, wanted to just talk to you about trust. You are seeming to be one of the foremost experts on it. Um, as I was sharing with you before um, we started recording, something that you can't really see, but you know it when it's there's a problem. But you define it in the book as a willingness to be vulnerable to another based on the confidence that the other is benevolent, honest, open, reliable, and competent. So trust is complex. When you first started researching this concept, were you surprised at how complex it was? Yes, it was really a process of discovery for me. Um, I started out at studying trust as for my dissertation. And so I thought, well, the first thing I need to do is find a definition of trust and, and a measure. And it turned out that there was, there was really not uh, any body of research that the two or three articles that my uh, chair, Wayne Hoy, had done with a couple of his students in the late 1980s and early 1990s, but that had kind of fallen away. And so, um, so I wanted to pick up that line of research and carry it forward. But looking around for a definition, I found that many scholars just assumed that everybody would know, know what trust was and didn't bother to define it. And when they did define it, everybody defined it in a different way. You know, so so I was, because there was so little um, research in educational leadership or even in education more broadly, I ended up looking across psychology and business literature and philosophy and across many different fields. And, uh, and that's where I found many different definitions. And so I started collecting those definitions and, and then eventually did kind of a uh, qualitative analysis, just kind of a sort of the different facets that were raised across the different literature. So that this definition really isn't original to me. It's really a composite of other people's thinking, other people's ideas, but uh, taking those facets that seem to be most salient um, across definitions. And then testing them empirically and testing them um, both with some quantitative analysis and, and it turned out all five of those facets do co-vary. Uh, when one falls down, you know, trust falls down and, and they all tend to be low. And if, if one's high, they all tend to be high. So they do seem to operate as a set of criteria, at least within the context of, of educational leadership. I can't make that claim. I don't want to make that claim. More broadly, there may be um, fields like how you trust a surgeon or how you trust your accountant. You know, may, all those five facets might not be be relevant, but within school leadership, the work that we do, those five facets have empirical evidence, both quantitative and qualitative, have affirmed that those are important for both school leaders and for teachers, for educators. I, I wonder too if the if your definition with the five facets 
helps it align with the incredible complexity of of being a school leader. You know, you, you might need it to be that wide and that um, nuanced. And um, but and that's what I appreciate about your book. You took those five facets throughout the entire text, but then supported it throughout the way with a lot of quantitative types of studies that, you know, as you said, uh, supported supported what you were finding. And uh, you were an elementary principal, correct, in Chicago? Yeah, in Chicago, yes. Yeah. And how long were you principal there? 14 years. Okay. So you got that, just that lived experience too of, of leading yeah. a school. And how did your experience as a principal pique your interest in trust? you know, as an eventual focus for your studies? Well, I set up, my school in Chicago was a school that I founded. And it was a small school, just 64 students in, in four multi-age classrooms, kindergarten through eighth grade, in this low-income neighborhood that had one of the lowest performing schools in the city of Chicago. And so we were um, working with kids who were living in difficult circumstances. And we, I wanted to have the opportunity to try out progressive teaching methods and see if our results might be different. And really, we found that they were. But we had this lovely, lovely school where, and we lived off of hand-me-downs um, from the North Shore of Chicago and all over, throughout Chicagoland. Teachers would, there would be materials being thrown out, um, you know, perfectly good library books and science equipment and things. People would think, well, that's a shame to have that go to waste. And so they'd pack up their cars and drive down to donate them to us. And, and so that's how we had school. But inevitably, when they would come in to drop off the, their donations, they'd spend a few minutes. And within only a few minutes, you know, five minutes or something, they would say, this is an amazing place. And and I was curious about this, like, well, I know that I live here, but you've only been here five minutes. What are you seeing? What are you feeling? These are educators from some of the wealthiest districts in the nation coming and saying this is amazing, that the feel of the place um, was something really special. And so so that evoked some some wondering for me. It's like, what is that that they're noticing, that they're seeing? And, and how do you get your hands on it? How do you have language around it? Many of the teachers in my school were going to graduate school and they'd come talking about these, these concepts that were so fascinating to me. Well, one principal from the North Shore that I knew was doing his dissertation on something that seemed like such a novel idea at the time. It was called student engagement. And I'm like, wow, that's cool. And he's like, you've got it. Your students are just so highly engaged. It's like, well, of course they are. You know, we're doing fun things. We're, we're teaching in ways with hands-on and manipulatives and making it engaging and relevant. But it's like, you know, things get wild if they're not engaged. So we, we have an incentive to make them engaged. But anyway, so I set off to, to graduate school with this question in, in mind, what is that, that thing that people are noticing? What's it called? What's, what's their language about that? And so fortunately for me, when I arrived at the Ohio State University, um, and there was a new faculty member, Wayne Hoy, who was the leading expert in this thing called school climate. And my first class was with him. And he started talking about his new book on school climate. It's like, that's it. That's it. That's what you call it. That's what people were noticing. That, that was the feel of it. And, uh, and before long, I asked Wayne if he would uh, needed any help with his research. That I was so curious about it. And I wanted to be a part of that. And so, so he hired me and on my first day on the job, 
he had gave me assignment to look into something uh, again I'd never heard of something called teacher self-efficacy I'm like you know I don't want to look stupid on my first day of work but I don't know what the heck that is and so we did uh, uh, together we did a review of the research and that ended up really bringing together bodies of knowledge that that took off well having done all that people everybody knew I was going to do my dissertation on on teachers of efficacy, right? Because I'd already done the lit review. But it was like, no, going back to my little school in Chicago, it's like there was something else there that made it such a special place that, that you could feel that was palpable when you came in, in the doors. In this, what, what, it was a very rough neighborhood. So you felt the contrast when you came in and, and that was trust. So I said, no, I'm going to set aside this whole lit review I've done on teacher self-efficacy, although that was some of what was the magic that was happening at my school as well. But I, I was curious about trust. It, says, it seems like nobody's talking about that. And I think if we're gonna take to scale the kind of uh, results that we were having in my little incubator school, that we were gonna need to know a lot more about trust. And so that set me on a path for the last 25 years of, of studying this construct. You hear that too, when, and, and I've had my own school, my not this school, but my past school, they would say similar things. Um, they would have a feeling of it, just like uh, someone described it as a, a well-oiled machine. I didn't know how to take that. I think I might have been some varied issues of trust because it can go both ways too. If there's not enough autonomy with the teachers, it can be, it can be kind of a cold place too. And and you described it in your book, you, which was very helpful to kind of give a narrative feel to the text with Fred, Gloria, and Brenda. Fred is the very laissez-faire, deferential type of leader. Uh, Gloria is more the command and control. Um, someone described this type of leader as a, uh, a bull in a china shop. Um, just a, you know, just yeah. not a lot of empathy toward uh, how, others are, how others are feeling, perceiving reality. And then there's Brenda, who's not perfect. You know, she, you know, you nicely describe her as, a, you know, human like the rest of us, but has that kind of that balance of both support and challenge of leading the school. So the, that kind of gets into the brass tacks here. Just what are some strategies of, of being a Brenda? I guess mm-hmm. that just on the, the top of your mind that people can employ today, tomorrow uh, for achieving and maintain, maintaining this balance of, of support and challenge, which builds trust. Yes, yes. And all three of those principles were real people. And mm-hmm. I interviewed teachers from their schools and described it. And it was only later when I was analyzing the data, I was like, oh, wait a minute, these, these really fit with the schema of leadership of, of, uh, on this continuum of relationship, higher, low in relationship and higher, low in task. And so we saw the disastrous outcomes of very well-meaning. Fred and Gloria were both very well-meaning, but Fred was too willing to give up on the task dimension of his work in the interest of having positive relationships with other, which ironically then led to not positive relationships. Although people liked him, they they were really annoyed that he wasn't doing his job. He wasn't stepping up to the plate and doing what they needed him to do to hold people accountable. And then there was Brenda, I mean, sorry, Gloria, who, you know, let go of the relationship dimension. So I think uh, holding in mind, we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to hold in mind the the critical importance of the task that we are charged with and and the trust that we are given uh, when we are handed the keys to a school and given a leadership role in that school. 
but also don't lose sight of the humanity of the people who are doing that work to recognize as a school leader, you're not the one delivering the core mission of the school. The teachers are at the top. So when I talk about professionalism versus bureaucracy, we think of a, of a you know, pyramid uh, org chart in a bureaucratic organization where the leaders are at the top. And there's certain assumptions people make as they move up through the leadership ranks. But in a professional organization, I like to flip that and say, it's those who are delivering the core mission of the organization who are the ones who, whose work is the most essential to our collective outcomes. And so in schools, those are the teachers. One principal I talked to said, there's only two kinds of people in the school. There are the teachers and those who support the work of teachers. And I like that notion of school leadership because I think it lends us to a professional orientation where we, our work is we're not stepping up into leadership with coercive authority to make people do things and issue orders. We are there to support the work of professionals and do everything that we can to make sure that their work is buffered from interruptions, from other things that would distract from the quality of their work, because that's everything. What's happening in those classrooms is everything for us. And we have to, we have to honor that and recognize that that is happening through the people who are delivering that instruction, the teachers and the other staff, you know, in people in different kinds of roles. But we need to, uh, to have positive relationships with those people. So we need to earn their trust if we're going to ask them to take the risk that trying out new instructional strategies or implementing a new curriculum involves. We need to recognize that we're asking them to take risks and create an environment of, of safety and of caring so that they can uh, feel confident in trying something new that may or may not work out. Like let's do our best thinking about this, but first couple of times we, we, we ex can expect an implementation dip. It's gonna get harder before it gets easier. And so people, teachers need to know that their principal is there to back them up. We are experiencing significant implementation dip right now, as you can imagine, yeah. uh, with with just the situation with being remote or hybrid. We've been in virtual my own school for now uh, two weeks, and it just seems like trust matters more than ever because we're at a distance and and people need our support. And it, but it's hard to give that support when we're all in different spaces. And I'm sure you would agree that trust matters more than ever. Any specific recommendations for online spaces um, between, for their relationships? Yeah, it, I think it's become much more difficult because we've lost those informal interactions, the exchanges that just happen as we pass in the hall or we first greet each other in the morning. So the ways that we can convey benevolence in asking about somebody's family member who's ill or things that we're aware of, or, or just even some shared jokes that we can kind of banter, a little bit of banter with each other as we engage for the day that, that conveys sense, I like you, I care about you. Um, you matter to me as a human being. Before we start the day, before we start our task, let, you know, I wanna convey that, um, that you're somebody who matters to me. And so when we get in the online spaces, we're very task focused. I mean, we tend to be, we, you know, we get on there at a certain time, we get our work done, just, 
We, we're all aware of Zoom fatigue, so we try to get in and out as quickly as we can. And, and so that has lended us, we're leaning over to Gloria's point of view here, you know, that sort of all task and, and little relationship. So it's got, we've got to be intentional about the ways that we cultivate that sense of care for people. So, you know, trying to balance that out with not then saying, well, I want you to show up for more time on Zoom so I can let you know I care about you, which may or may not be, I mean, maybe they really would like some, uh, you know, some help and support. And so being available as an instructional leader, if you're having trouble with this or that, let's let's talk about it. I want to be your thinking partner. But there might be other ways that we have to invent to convey a sense of benevolence and, and genuine caring for the for the whole person, for what's going on, because this is such a stressful time for people, just in lives in general, and that certainly affects our teachers. We still have our monthly staff meetings. We do them on Zoom. Just thinking about being intentional with showing that we care. We've started to started our meetings with just, you know, what has your attention right now? And um, and trying to embed some humor. And, and then at the end of the session, it's optional, but we have a mindful moment um, where people can stick around and just take some time to, to some reflective meditative activities uh, to kind of take care of the social emotional side of, of, yeah. of that. You know, I'm already, already thinking about next year and looking forward to being back in physical classrooms. And one of my fears though, is that I see some inequities have really surfaced from this, you know, in terms of access, a home environment, um, just some spaces are just not designed well for, for learning. And, and we're seeing that and to the point where we're trying to even bring in a few kids who we just know aren't going to be successful online and, and taking that risk. But once we get back, we want to make sure we're trying to address some of these issues that have come up. And, and I just, when reading your book, you know, trust mitigates some of the effects of trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, poverty, other life factors, uh, to the point where um, it, it's it's not a significant um, factor if if high levels of trust are present for, in, term, in terms of student achievement. It so may be very... a significant factor, but we can get we can get through that. We can, it, it won't take as big a hit on learning. Yes, and, and and so then so trust becomes even more important for those you know like the school that you are in. It, enhances that and, and hopefully helps it make it better. How might schools change going back, you know, seeing some of these inequities, especially around access to um, various resources um, to better partner with families and communities? What were some things you did as a principal or what did you see other principals doing in your research to, to develop that? Yeah, well, I think what we're doing now is gonna impact how things are then. Because uh, families are going to know, I, I think we're just going to have to work a lot harder to demonstrate our care now when families are in such distress. But if we, you know, make a food available, uh, you know, if we if we are making learning, if we take go the extra mile to make learning materials available, to be doing things to to demonstrate our care. And for the whole child, and really for the whole family, not just here's let me help you make sure you get your math homework done this week, but let let me care for the whole child. That's going to live on. So the legacy of what we're doing or not doing now, I think, is going to impact 
how things are when we come back. It's going to be hard to say, oh, we haven't seen you for a long time because you didn't have internet access. And oh, well, now you're back. Let's accelerate you. And uh, oh, by the way, I really care about you. You know, I think that's that's going to ring hollow. So I think it's challenging. It's challenging because we have, and you know, ultimately someday we may choose to structure schools differently. We really inherited this, you know, factory model of schools where we batch students by age and move them through, and uh, and it may be that some creative new solutions grow out of this this time of hardship, where we are finding that we have to rely on technology. Well, it may be that we discover some ways of organizing learning differently, making use of the affordances of technology, but then enriching it with what we're all missing in our being together in physical presence. Uh, and to really cherishing the, those times uh, when we're, what, what are the affordances of face-to-face that we've really been missing? How do we capitalize on that? So as a university professor, we, we're really thinking about that. What parts of our courses, you know, can we move into online spaces and then uh, in a hybrid model, you know, what, what is the best and highest use of that, those precious times when we're together face-to-face? Well, I think, I, I hope we're gonna think about face-to-face instruction differently, that we don't just go back to what we were doing, but figure out what is technology best for? And let's use mm-hmm. that so that we can make the face-to-face time even more engaging, even more relevant, even uh, uh, better than, than it has been at accomplishing our larger goals of deeper learning. You mentioned your multi-age model that you use in Chicago. And, and I think some of those can be beneficial nowadays too. I mean, it serves a flexibility um, that's something I've noticed just with our grade levels. And you mentioned um, more of a factory model that has maybe limited us in terms of how flexible we can be and adaptive to, to the needs now. So yeah, it'll be interesting what, what comes of this. Near the end of the book, you note the importance of trust repair through specifically apology. Um, can you say more about that and why apology is, is so important? several different people I interviewed to all told the same story of a time when Brenda had apologized to a teacher when she, after she'd been kind of snippy with that teacher short with her. And, um, and that just struck me because there seems to be a mythology among leaders that never apologize. It'll make you look weak. And, and yet I, what I was seeing in, in my research was that it was very powerful. It was powerful enough that several different people uh, raised it. As, as a story that, that let them, that in telling me why did they feel like they could trust Brenda. And so that struck me um, as, as important. And that's why I included in the book, the, to, to counter this narrative of never apologize. I think really sincerity is what's at the heart of it. And when should you apologize? If you genuinely regret having done something that, has hurt somebody else to to say that. And I think perhaps enriching our vocabulary of um, not just I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but a a deeper using the compassionate communication model that um, I've talked about to talk about, you know, I'm grieving that that 
to hear that you you were so hurt by what was done or said, or you know, as we are approached by people who have been hurt, to be uh, taking the time to really listen carefully and well, and to reflect the feelings and needs that are emerging from the story that they're telling us. I think it's that attention, giving our full attention and a respectful understanding of empathizing with the impact of what decision. Um, and we may regret the impact, but it was a decision we still stand by, or there may be times when we think, well, man, I didn't, that wasn't a great decision. I'm, I wish I'd made a different decision. But I, I think it's that, um, that quality of listening and care, of giving our full attention when somebody is sharing with us um, that they were hurt or angry or upset by something that we did or said, um, just uh, that openness. So I don't think it's really the words I'm sorry that are, that are so helpful in those situations. I think it's demonstrating our care and the uh, the routine that the protocol I think you provided in the book the four steps um, I have now used and I found it very effective and making our care and our thoughtfulness and reflective being a reflective practitioner really well thank you Megan for joining us um, the book is Trust Matters Leadership for Successful Schools um, it's in its second edition and uh, trust is a a critical aspect of leadership and I would say it's it deserves our full attention and a priority before we can engage in a lot of the other work that we do. So, so thank you for sharing your work and, uh, and your experiences. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate this opportunity to share.